Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you like what you hear, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy it. I'm so excited to discuss my sponsor today, which is Page One Books, because my summer book bundle is ready on pageonebooks.com. And the bundle that I've put together includes three books that I picked, uh, Montauk by Nicola Harrison, More Myself by Alicia Keys, and I Miss You When I Blink by Mary Laura Philpot, all of which have been on this podcast here. Uh, it includes a Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books beach tote, a cute little library card pencil slash cosmetic case, and a water bottle for staying hydrated plus a little um, thing of sun lotion. So go to pageonebooks.com, page one with the number one, so page number one books.com, and check out my page one book summer bundle. Buy it as a gift, a housewarming, if you actually go somewhere or just give it to yourself. Everybody needs a treat. We've had a long spring. <laughs> Pageonebooks.com. Welcome to day four of my July book blast. Today, I'm going to be calling this Thrilling Thursday, and there are a bunch of thrillers and suspenseful reads that I thought you'd really enjoy and that would make great summer reads. A lot of these came out during the pandemic, and they're really worth your time, so I wanted to get them out. I hope you enjoy them. Amy Jo Burns is the author of the memoir Cinderland and Shiner, a novel which just came out this summer. Her writing has appeared in the Paris Review, Tin House, Plowshares, Gay Magazine, Electric Literature, Literary Hub, and the anthology Not That Bad. 
Welcome, Amy Jo. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So happy to be here. You have written not only Shiner and a memoir and so much else, but your personal essays we have to talk about because they are so good. I just like kept reading one after another, but I know that Shiner is your latest book. So let's talk about that first. Sure. Can, Can you tell listeners, please, what Shiner is about? Absolutely. So Shiner is the story of a 15-year-old girl. Her name is Wren, and she lives secluded in the mountains of West Virginia with her parents. And her dad became this local legend when he got struck by lightning when he was young, and he became a snake handling preacher. And one summer, Wren witnesses her father perform this really strange miracle that goes terribly wrong. And as a result of that, all of her family secrets that she had no idea about start to unravel. So the book is told from three different perspectives. One is hers, of course. Another is a lovelorn moonshiner. And then the last is a reclusive housewife. And those voices all work together to tell the story that is the true story behind this mountain legend. Wow. And what inspired you to write it? So, I mean, a lot of different things. I think that this story has been growing inside of me for such a long time. You know, I grew up in northern Appalachia and the landscape has always been incredibly special to me and inspiring. But I think the actual roots of the story started and it really started to feel alive to me was after I finished publishing my memoir, which is called Cinderland. And it's a it's a story about what it's like to be a young woman who has to keep a secret. And as a result of publishing it, I had so many people come forward and just share with me these stories that they had been keeping for decades. And it was such a moving experience that I realized that I wanted to tell the second half of the story, which is, you know, I wanted to talk about what it's like to be a woman who has a story that has gone unheard, but I also wanted to write about what a great act of compassion it is to bear witness to someone else's story. And so that's where the seeds of this story with all these different histories and winding trails came together for me was how you can find the bravery within yourself to tell that secret that you thought you never could. Wow. And now that I've read all your personal essays, I know I know your secrets. <laughs> You do. They're all in there. <laughs> Are you comfortable sort of talking about some of the stuff from, from your past oh. that may have informed this book and everything? Absolutely. Happy to. So you wrote really honestly and beautifully about what happened when not even so much in the moment of what happened with the abuse of your piano teacher, but then <laughs> how you kept it a secret and then your parents, when it came out that it had, you had not been the only one, well, maybe I shouldn't tell your story, but <laughs> when you were not <laughs> the only one, then your parents, you know, confronted you about it, how you handled it and how that sort of experience impacted your life. Can you just talk a little about that and even your decision to share what happened with you? Yeah, sure. You know, I think so what happened when I was 10 was uh, this really beloved piano teacher in my hometown was accused by started with one girl and then another and then another for basically assaulting them during their lessons. And which and I, I like to use that word assault because I think it it's something that only kind of came into play within the past few years. And I'm really grateful to be able to use it because I feel like it's an accurate description. But basically, a few girls started to come forward about what he'd done during their lessons. And a lot of the people in the town chose to support the piano teacher instead of these young women. So I was somebody who saw all this happening in these these young girls. I mean, we were 10, 11, 12 years old. They were vilified 
by the town, accused of conspiracy and a bunch of other ridiculous things, not by everybody, but by a lot of people. And what ended up happening after that is that it was put in this vault and nobody talked about it. So I grew up having this huge secret. I saw what had happened. I decided to lie about it to the police. And I just held that secret. And I didn't really remember it actually until I'd left home and was in college. And it kind of, I was out in the woods one day and it just sort of slammed me in the face. And I thought, oh my gosh, like I, it was like one of those moments you have where you just feel like everything changes in your life. And I remembered and to sort of, I guess, tie it back to what I ended up writing about was I, I realized that it wasn't only the event itself that had caused a lot of harm. It was the silence around it and the weight of keeping a secret. So I wanted to write about what it was like to hold it and, and the cost that came not only to me as a young woman, but to this my whole hometown and also this generation of young women that felt like we couldn't talk about it. So that sort of was kind of the basis of the book. And I did not see Cinderland coming. I always had dreamed of myself as a, a novelist. and But every time I sat down to write, everything I wrote, it was just not very good. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I mean, sure, you know, that's normal. Everybody's got a learning curve and things like that. But I kind of came to a, a point personally where I realized if I didn't tell the truth about what had happened firstly to myself, that I was going to be writing around it for the rest of my life and that everything I wrote was just going to have huge blind spots because there were a few things that I was really afraid to be honest about in my life because I thought it was going to cost me everything. That's what I had been taught when I was 10 was that if you tell the truth about this, you will lose everything that you have. So what ended up happening is that I just started to try to tell one true thing after another true thing after another true thing. And then eventually, you know, I had a book and I couldn't believe that my first book was going to be a memoir. But, you know, now that it's been out for about five years, I'm so grateful that it was my first book because I feel like it's such a foundation that reminds me of like what's at stake when you sit down to write, whether it's a story you're imagining or if it's something that happened to you, there's there's real stakes about putting your story out there and inviting other people to kind of like sit in it with you, you know? Totally. I have to go back now and read your memoir. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. I also am just so struck. I mean, I've talked to so many people who talk about the damage that keeping secrets really does to, to somebody, especially a child. Like there seems to be no worse thing than telling a child to not, you know, own up to something that's happened. Well, it's in any context, not just sexual abuse, but really, I don't know that I feel like there should be some sort of deep dive into the mm-hmm. damage of keeping secrets. I'm sure it has been done, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. Because you know what, one of the saddest thing for me was when I was an adult and I realized that keeping that secret made me feel like I was this guy's accomplice and not his victim. Yep. And that was something that I really had to work through. And part of writing Cinderland was me saying, you know what, it is okay for this man to be accountable for what he did. It's not wrong. It's not, you know, the the quote unquote Christian thing of me or the quote unquote female thing of me to let it slide and to offer forgiveness. So there's a real importance to saying, no, you know, he can be held accountable for what he did. And so that's, you know, a lot of what that, that book is about. 
But it's also about, you know, a longing for home and all those things that I thought I had lost as a result of what had happened, you know, that some of the things ended up coming back to me. A lot of friendships I thought I had lost actually returned to me after I published the book. So that was a really wonderful thing, too. Well, when the pandemic ends and if this ever can work out, I would love to have a conversation between you and Adrian Broder, who wrote a book called Wild Game. And she had to keep a secret from about the same age as you, although it was the mm-hmm. fact that her mother was having an affair and she became an accomplice to that. And I feel like you guys would have a really interesting a big chat. conversation. Yeah, I'd love to. About secrets. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay, as an aside. Also, I wanted to talk about your love of ballet and how you called yourself a Rust Belt ballerina, which was yeah. so great. And I feel like it should be a children's book, by the way, Rust yeah. Belt ballerina. So you you can start working on that. (laughs) I'll add it to my list. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) Tell me about that and how you found your love of ballet and and what that did for you growing up. Yeah. So it's funny. I mean, my first ballet lesson, I think I was maybe six or seven. My mom took me and it was in an old community center. I didn't even have a pair of ballet slippers. I think I had like an orange pair of Chuck Taylor's And I I went and we didn't even have a bar. It was just like a row of folding chairs. And we listened to a recording on, you know, an old boombox that was a recording of a recording of a recording to this, you know, piano music. So it was very static and things like that. And yet, even in all of that, I just found such a grace and beauty about the art form of ballet. And what it became for me, I think, was for a way, it was a way for me to express myself that. I couldn't find through words. I couldn't find it through anything else. And now, of course, looking back, I can see this young girl and this young woman who was wrestling with all these things she couldn't articulate. And ballet became that weekly thing I did where it was like my body was just able to speak for itself. And that was why I loved practicing ballet, but I never wanted to perform it. It just wasn't, it didn't hold that draw. I mean, typically you hear about ballerinas loving the lights and the stage and all that. But for me, I just, I loved that solitary practice at the bar up and down, you know, the sort of like predictable rhythm of it. And it became something that was a a real anchor for me when I was young. And I mean, you know, please know I'm like five foot tall, never. (laughs) (laughs) you know, a professional ballerina, but it was one of those things that is, it was so life-giving to me at such an important time. And when I think about it now, I see myself performing ballet in the middle of this town that was literally in the midst of a steel collapse. I mean, the building we had it in, I think was like next door to this empty steel mill. The only reason we were able to practice was because nobody could use the building anymore, you know? And when you're a kid, you don't pick up on all that stuff. But then when you're an adult, you think, oh my gosh, like there's, there's a sadness to that, but there's a real beauty to it too. So that is one of many things that I loved about growing up there even though the rest of the world looked at it and thought, oh, this town is past its prime. To me, I thought it was beautiful and I still think it's beautiful. And I think that also shows up in Shiner, this idea of, you know, what the rest of the world thinks is true about the mountains in West Virginia. And if it's a cautionary tale and the people who live there say, like, we refuse to be written off. We're living very complicated, very vibrant lives, you know, regardless of what the rest of the world thinks. You said somewhere that the expressions that people use to describe you, like, I can't remember exactly what they were. You had never even heard until you left home, right? Yes. They were somewhat derogatory. And you're like, what What do you mean? Why are you describing me that way? 
Yeah. So, you know, my name's Amy Joe, obviously, and I never realized it, but it's, you know, when I went to college, people wanted me to like explain my name. And, and that was how I realized, oh, this having a middle name like Joe or going by a first and middle name at all sort of signifies maybe that you're from a certain region of the country or that maybe you're, you know, a hillbilly or a redneck. And that was some of the questions I got asked. And you know, I would be in class and they would sort of talk about this area that's known as the Rust Belt or this area that's known as Appalachia. And I'd be looking at a map and I was like, oh, like, <laughs> from. And so it just was such an interesting thing how people academically try to, you know, slot you in some category. And you think, I mean, if nothing else, it was fascinating to me, but then also like, oh, when you realize that doesn't really match what I felt or what I experienced. And I think that probably more than anything else is sort of a common thread throughout everything I write. It's like, oh, you, you think you know the real story, but I don't think you do. <laughs> <laughs> and tell me a little about your writing process and how, how you tackle both the memoir and the novel, if you do outlines or how you yeah. organize yourself and how long it took to write those books. Oh, Lord, I, it is a mess. I, <laughs> books that I have written, they, it just was such a mess. And I had to learn to just be okay with that because anytime I tried to organize my mess, it would sort of like circumvent the whole process and I would have to start again. Because I think that when I start writing something, whether it's an essay or, you know, the memoir or a novel or something like that, my subconscious is my best friend and it's sort of trying to work something out on the page and if my inner editor comes in and tries to have an opinion about it too soon, then it's just sort of like goes off the rails. So, I mean, I think logistically my process for everything, whether it's something long, something short, you know, true, not true. It's, it's pretty much the same where I will have a notebook and I will write down a bunch of just, they're not even sentences. It's just, you know, phrases, images, things. And I will fill up an entire notebook that does not make any sense to anybody but me. <laughs> and I realized at this point that that is, that's my first draft. It's sort of like getting a bunch of patchwork pieces all together. And then you sort of step back and look at it. And then you can kind of make a quilt from it. So my second draft is usually, you know, trying to match up all the quilt pieces. And then I go from there. So it it takes me a long time. I mean, I think um, Cinderland, the difference with writing that, that probably took me two or three years. The big difference, though, was that I did not have kids when I wrote that book. So I was able to sit down and just work for five, six, seven hours straight. And I just felt like I had gone into that material so deep. And, you know, I was so in it in a really interesting way. And then I had two kids. And as you know, you yeah. don't get you don't even get an hour. I know. You don't get a minute. <laughs> no, you don't. And so much of Shiner was me sitting down. I mean, I would get my laptop all set up and my pen and my paper and then would run and, you know, try to get my son in his crib and cross my fingers and then run downstairs and maybe get 45 minutes where I would write something. And I thought every day, I was like, I'm never going to finish this. And then I would kind of just let myself say it. And then I would write 200 words. And then all of a sudden, you know, I mean, I say all of a sudden, but it was a lot of rewrites and things like that and having another baby. <laughs> and But then it was done. And it was done in these sort of very 45 minutes here, maybe an hour and a half there. 
that's how that book was done. And I feel like that's so important to mention because I think it's scary for a lot of people to think, how do I make this creative life with kids? And it does change. And I won't lie and tell you I don't miss those deep dives into the material that I had before, but I'm so happy with how Shiner came out. And I think there's something special about it that I probably wouldn't have been able to capture if I didn't have kids, you know? So there's a lot of, I see a lot of evolution of myself as a person in Shiner that came about because I couldn't work the way I once did. And I kind of just had to roll with it and, you know, let my creative energy figure it out. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, Amy Jo, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing about Shiner. Thanks for sharing your deepest, darkest secrets with us and (laughs) just like glibly talking about them in the middle of the day. So (laughs) I'm so happy to do it because I think that it's really important to say it's not the secret themselves that should cause us any kind of shame. So it's, it's something I'm always, you know, happy to dive into in the middle of the day. So thank you for <laughs> asking me and hearing me out. Of course. All right. Great talking to you. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode from Thriller Thursday, part of my July book blast to get great authors into your hands while the summer is still going on. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks again for listening to my podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at zibbyowens.com so you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much to Page One Books for sponsoring today's episode. I hope you'll all check out my summer beach bundle at pageonebooks.com. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.